You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Olaf, welcome. Hey, Ash, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. You know, I've been following the work that you guys have been doing at Polychain Capital for years, uh, and it's great to get to finally uh, sit down and talk with you uh, about the many things that you've been watching. Uh, let's start off a little bit. You have an interesting journey in the space. How did you get involved in crypto, and how did you come to be where you are today? Mm -hmm. So it was the summer of 2011. I was going into my senior year of undergraduate studies, and um, a friend shared with me an article about Bitcoin. And um, I pretty immediately was sort of rocketed down the veritable rabbit hole, um, became really, really obsessed with this idea of internet sovereign money um, and this sort of a, a community-owned money, so to speak. And um, basically was going to my senior year of studying. So I wrote my undergraduate thesis on cryptocurrency um, later that year. Um, I joined Coinbase as the first employee, um, basically my first real real job out of school, and uh, was part of scaling that business substantially from you know the three of us in a residential apartment up to about you know 150 to 200 people. Went through Series A, B, and C at Coinbase. During most of that time, I was the head of risk, so focused on security systems, anti-fraud. Uh, and operational things like customer support and and um, investigations. What so, incredible perspective to watch the opening years of this space from. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've never felt like I've been watching it. I feel like I've been just in the fray. Yeah. Um, and, you know, watching Coinbase scale really um, taught me a lot about what it means to operationally go through sort of hyper growth at a startup type business. And you know, watching the technology side of the cryptocurrency landscape continually evolve that whole time as well. And so it was in 2016 that I decided to leave Coinbase after about three and a half years there to launch the Polychain Fund. Yeah. So your background was on the computer science side. Yeah, I mean, my background really is cryptocurrency. I know it. it I I don't have some you know special relevant background before getting into cryptocurrency, like I was a college student. And then you got to go through the scaling and also the fundraising process about the VC process uh, with, uh, with Coinbase. Yeah, I think at, at Coinbase, um, learned a lot about what it means to um, use equity financing to scale a company ahead of, you know, um, you know achieving profits and um, also, what it just means to organize a team. I mean, one year after I started, I had a team of 43 people reporting to me. Uh, so, you know, we were high, you know, just for my team, it's almost one person a week at, as wow. far as scaling a team and learned a lot about kind of organizational design um, and how to best handle when you have a business that's doing so well that it's causing real problems for the business, which is like the best startup problem you can have. Right. 
So when you founded uh, Polychain, I, something like 95 or plus percent of the uh, market capitalization of cryptocurrency uh, was in Bitcoin alone. When you were starting up this business, what was your thought process about where the value proposition was going to yeah. be? So this was kind of the core uh, big insight that led to kind of the name Polychain and the whole idea of our firm. Um, so it was it's really two things. One is in the market. Um, I felt that people understood Bitcoin, this idea of a sort of internet gold or internet sovereign money, but people were massively underestimating how much when you add computation to this sort of blockchain structure, um, how much that unlocks new types of human organizational structures, capital coordination, um, and just new use cases. Yeah. So some of the really basic ones that are unlocked by that are, for example, um, assets that settle on blockchains, so they sort of work the way Bitcoin works, but instead of having a free-floating price the way Bitcoin does, they can be pegged to the value of an asset that's not on the blockchain. So, for example, the U.S. dollar or the S&P 500 or, you know, really anything you could ever come up with. Um, you can have these assets that are pegged to those values and settle on the blockchain like Bitcoin does. So that means you have mobile-to-mobile global payment systems that anyone in the world can interact with without a bank account. All they need is an internet connection. And you really have the ability to uh, issue and settle, you know, arbitrary assets all using software. Right. So that, you know, I felt that, um, you know, most of that was being pioneered in 2016 in the Ethereum um, um, community. And I thought that there was a lot going on there that the market sort of didn't understand and was maybe mispricing um, just because it is somewhat technically complicated and a lot of the use cases for how um, those those systems can be used are a bit blurry right when you're investing in open protocols open platforms it's very hard to predict all the myriad of ways that developers will use these to build value and so this felt a little bit like the early internet whereby it's hard to predict all the big websites that will become hits. However, you can understand the internet's architecture and understand that you know there are going to be very big websites, even if I don't know exactly what they all are, um, which right. as, as an investor, I think is a um, very interesting place to be because you, you, you have to have faith that the architecture will lead to novel applications that are sort of unprecedented and impossible before this new architecture but you don't right, right. always know, you know, it's going to be Wikipedia, YouTube, and Facebook. Um, I think it's hard to see that kind of stuff in, in the 90s. Right. You know, it's interesting uh, in talking about novel applications. This is about the time that I became uh, aware of the work that you guys were doing at Polychain. And it was one of the major, uh, I think it's fair to say, aha moments that I had in the cryptocurrency space. I think it was uh, probably in the late summer or early fall of uh, 2017. Uh, you'd famously been on the cover of Forbes magazine uh, a few months earlier. Uh, and I was having a conversation uh, with one of my colleagues uh, at, at Coindesk, where I was a, a markets reporter. And we were talking about Web 3.0 functionality. Uh, and uh, I think it was one of the guys I work with said to me, listen, I'm not really doing a great job of explaining this. You need to call the guys at Polychain Capital and talk to them. They're the experts in this. They really understand what's going on. And I had a call with uh, someone from your shop. Uh, and I remember walking out of that uh, conversation completely transformed from where I'd come 
coming into it. I had a background, obviously, as a financial reporter. I understood Bitcoin. I thought I understood Bitcoin as a use case of digital gold. I thought that was pretty clear. And I think I understood the medium of exchange functionality. So I got store of value. I got medium of exchange. What I didn't understand walking into that conversation were the myriad new applications that were going to come out of distributed systems uh, going forward. And I think it was Filecoin, the use case for Filecoin that really caught my attention just as a metaphor for some of the things that were possible uh, in the emerging Web 3.0 technologies. Talk to me a little bit about where your view is about Web 3.0 distributed systems. Uh, you've talked about uh, the distinction between uh, an ownership web and a user-owned web. I think it's really a fascinating, fascinating topic. Yeah, so one of the ways to think about it is Web 2, as in the existing web we have today, um, is mostly very large platforms where the users of those platforms gain value from the other users of the platform. This is often called network effects, right? I go on Twitter because of other users of Twitter. I don't exactly buy a good or service from Twitter, Inc., per se. It's mostly about the network of other users. And this is how Instagram works, Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, eBay, you know, LinkedIn, you know, th these are most of the very big web 2.0 companies is you host a platform, you have users join and accrue value from the other users, but all the value extraction happens by the platform owner, even though all of the users are providing the value for the other users. Right. So um, at a high level, it, a lot of what um, people are going to use blockchains for is disintermediating those centralized platforms that extract value from that underlying user base. So in a very simple example, imagine um, a marketplace like eBay, where someone can post a, a good uh, for sale and somebody else can bid on it. eBay in that model provides a very narrow sort of thin um, software system to help coordinate buyers and sellers. And it attaches a few um, nice features like a reputation system. Um, you know, has the seller sold 100 items or 1,000? And what were the ratings of those sales? And those are the types of things that um, you can automate with software and sort of remove eBay as the middleman. Um, so this sort of automation of the centralized marketplace or coordinator model that's so prevalent with Web 2.0 platforms is one of the ways people talk about how um, this, this concept of a Web 3, where the users are really more so the owners of that platform. And it's not as much this value extraction model by a centralized platform owner that really isn't always actually aligned with the users. I mean, the classic thing is, um, you know, the, the platform owner actually wants to add as many advertisements and things like that as possible to the underlying platform experience. And that only benefits the platform owner, but it hurts the entire user base. And so you have this kind of equity cap table of owners of the platform that are radically divorced from the value that all the users of the platform are gaining. Whereas in a cryptocurrency system, so you know, very simple example of Bitcoin, there's no Bitcoin Inc. or Bitcoin LLC that's extracting value from the system. Um, all of the value of Bitcoin is held by the owners of the Bitcoin system who are you know, this massive, massive group of millions of people all around the world. And so um, when, you, when you automate a lot of that sort of marketplace interaction or 
um, you know, the, the first use case where we're really seeing these kind of Web3 apps, so to speak, emerge is in financial applications. So, so things like lending protocols or things like order books being automated with software, you remove that middleman um, and basically return ownership and value accrual to the users who are actually the ones providing value in the first place. So, you know, I think the, the case where we've seen a lot of success, for example, is in um, order books, right? Traditionally with a financial exchange, you send assets um, to the exchange and it sort of hosts an order book and you can trade, but that exchange is gonna extract fees and uh, that exchange is sort of a private company based in some sort of jurisdiction. Um, in this sort of more automated software-based version, all of that exchange and order book logic is actually embedded in the blockchain in what's called a smart contract. So rather than this being um, just a payment from point A to point B, you can actually encode more complicated financial logic in uh, the blockchain and then you know, arbitrary people from all around the world can interact with that contract. And so that contract can have all of that financial and order book logic um, embedded inside of it. And it can create a two-sided marketplace where people can buy and sell goods. And you basically have a very liquid order book, but that entire thing is purely automated with software. There's no business entity or legal jurisdiction anywhere. All of that financial logic is embedded in the blockchain. And so, you know, if you view Bitcoin as sort of this bootstrapping of like, internet-based gold, you know, the next step that we're entering um, before we get into a fully fledged sort of web three universe, so to speak, is the uh, decentralization of all the financial services to use uh, that sort of internet gold. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about DeFi in a few minutes, but it's really impossible to overstate the importance of the point that you just made about the decentralization uh, of big tech companies and the potential. This is really 400 years of joint stock company history being turned on its head. Yeah, I think a lot of what people underestimated is how much blockchains are not just sort of turning monetary systems into software and, and sort of a predictable algorithm, sort of. Um, but also blockchains have the ability to automate a lot of the relationships between humans that create sort of the modern corporate structure. Right. So this ability to pool capital, have it be collectively managed by a, a group of sort of investor owners, um, and then have turnover of secondary shares, right? So you can kind of constantly transfer ownership of that corporation in secondary markets. Um, and, you know, you have the ability to issue new shares and, and sell that for additional capital and everything. All of those sorts of behavior can be embedded using software um, onto blockchains. And um, what that means concretely is that we have these sort of internet sovereign what look and feel a little bit like corporate structures. But there again is no legal entity and there's no specific geography in which this is located. It's sort of all native to the internet. And it allows people from all around the world to coordinate capital um, and, and sort of manage that capital as, as they see fit, much in the way that a corporation might uh, coordinate capital and have shareholders that can, can direct those resources. Um, so I think a lot of these um, financial instruments that are embedded in blockchains, you know, the not only is that sort of automating um, a, a lot of this centralized marketplace or centralized financial service type model, but the actual um, capital structure that sort of supports and sort of owns that 
is also a blockchain-based system. So it's it's not that you have, you know, I think the part that's really hard to wrap your head around is it's not that eBay is competed against by another business that's also block that uses a blockchain for for um, cost savings. It's right. actually that eBay is competed against by pure protocol systems, right. where there literally is no legal entity anywhere, um, and that's that's what makes a lot of these systems so unstoppable. Um, right. it, it just feels to me, having been in this a long time, it's just sort of inevitable. It's just a matter of the technology getting there. Um, such that it's it, it, uh, secure and scalable, and then the appropriate abstractions so we can onboard end users. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. And that really is just a truly enormous paradigm shift. Olaf, if you could walk us through what that might look like practically, say five years down the road, uh, when there are these truly decentralized, distributed, autonomous organizations that are operating uh, with real customers, what might that feel like, look well, like? So I can tell you what it looks like today because we're actually um, at Polychain, um, I think the biggest investor in the world probably in a lot of these DAO-like systems. And when you say DAO, this is an DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is sort of a catch-all description of these sort of um, internet sovereign corporate structures, right, where people are coordinating capital and there's sort of ownership units that represent an interest in that. So um, we, you know, have been seed investors in, for example, a couple of lending systems um, one was called MakerDAO. Uh, the other is called Compound Finance. Yeah. Uh, both of these are blockchain-based uh, collateralized lending systems. So what that means is if I want to um, borrow money, I post uh, collateral, and this is actually held on the blockchain. So it can be visibly seen, the value of that collateral and how much collateral there is. I borrow against that um, collateral. And the, the great thing about this system is it's extraordinarily scalable and there's no concept of identity or geography or legal contracts anywhere in the system. So you can do, you know, it's kind of remarkable. You can do a $10 million, $10 million lend or borrow um, against a counterparty where you don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. Um, you don't trust them in any sense of the word trust. Um, but you can still do that contract in a highly secure manner where you know you're, you're not going to get ripped off, basically. Right, um, right. It's very similar to the way that you can send a Bitcoin transaction to somebody else and you have no idea who any of the Bitcoin miners in the world are, but you still have very, very, very strong security guarantees that that transaction will go through as intended. And this is because the the, the loans are highly are, are very well collateralized mm -hmm. uh, by in, with the underlying protocol securing this through math and physics basically. Yep. And so that's because that collateral is all on chain, um, you can see if that loan um, becomes dangerous. You know, if that collateral value drops such that it's becoming very close to the outstanding loan, it basically gets liquidated and that collateral gets seized. But in a fully programmatic manner, right. there's no pen and paper legal contracts here anywhere. 
And so you, don't, you don't have to sue to get the collateral. It's literally there, yeah, it's released on no, chain. Dramatically. There's no, I mean, I, I don't think you could, like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard when you try to blend these systems with like um, traditional legal apparatuses. Right. It's very tricky because it's like, what's the jurisdiction? And yeah. really who even, you know, compound is not a business. Right. You know, it's just a, a it's like Bitcoin. It's like it's like saying I'm going to go sue Bitcoin. Right. I'm going to okay. go sue. I'm going to. Yeah. It's like yeah. saying I'm going to sue TCP IP. Yeah. I'm going to sue the Internet. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't work quite like that. And so, well, you know, you've hit on this really critical point here, which I think is one of the things that traditional investors struggle to get their heads around because there really are no direct parallels. And that's challenging, yeah. I think, sometimes exactly. for people in traditional so finance to understand. I totally agree. And this has been one of the challenges that a lot of people have faced investing in blockchains is they are in general, most very successful venture investors at over the last, you know, call it 15, 20 years have made their money investing in Web2 platforms. Right. Um, and that Web2 platform model, you know, every single business I just explained, they all have the exact same model. It's a different underlying service. But it, it really is identical. You're, you're matching basically a buyer and a seller or like a content, content creator and a content consumer. You're, you're basically running this big, big liquid two-sided market for drivers and passengers or houses and renters, you know, and you own the platform and you take fees or you service ads, right? It's, but every single very big web company over the last 15, 20 years, pretty much they all have this, this model. Uh, not every single one of them, but most of them do. And I think that many modern investors sort of learned that model very well because it's what they know and it's what made money for them. Um, then when they look at blockchains, they're looking for that model again. Um, but the problem is it doesn't exist. And the whole point is that it doesn't exist. It's actually sort of the opposite um, in that the data layer is sort of burst wide open. You know, any developer in the world can append or alter these underlying services. So it's all open source, right? If I, as a developer, think I can improve the compound protocol, I can, like from my dorm room, copy that code, alter it and redeploy it to the blockchain and say, hey, I just launched um, my version of this. It's got a different name or whatever, and it, it works differently, right? So this ability to sort of infinitely remix financial services um, it means that we have, you know, financial innovation happening at the speed of open source software development, right. um, which is sort of the, the as far away as, as it's, it's, it's on the opposite end of the spectrum of traditionally the speed of innovation in financial services. Right. Right. So we're really going through this sort of economic renaissance of iteration in these financial services models. But to, to continue finishing uh, your question about compound, the really interesting thing about that compound underlying um, uh, contract system that allows people to lend and borrow is that it, it actually is sort of owned by this um, token comp, right? That has a massive base of tens of thousands of distributed holders. And so that base sort of looks and feels a bit like a corporation that owns a financial product. But both the corporation itself and all the relationships between the people, as well as the financial product itself, are defined not with pen and paper legal contracts, but with pure software contracts embedded in the blockchain. And so that, um, you know, that is when, when you say what will DAOs look like, I can tell you what they look like right now. 
And the compound DAO is worth over a billion dollars. Um, you know, the maker DAO system that I mentioned is is worth, I think, something about like six hundred million dollars. Um, and there are many other DAOs that are worth, you know, in this kind of like hundreds of millions to single digit billion range. Um, so it's it's um, it's still nascent, but it is not tiny. Um, you know, this these financial services, you know, businesses, I, I, I hesitate to use that word business, but it's sort of um, coordinating capital and coordinating humans around the management of that financial service. This is happening today. Um, it's just a question of how big this can be. And um, in my view, it can be very, very big. Um, a lot of the vision for Bitcoin was this could sort of outcompete fiat money or outcompete gold or something like that. And either one of those outcomes is absolutely massive. Um, now we're talking about really like a new corporate structure. Um, it's sort of like the invention of the C Corp um, is a little bit of what we're going through right now. And it's early days, but it's one of the reasons I have so much conviction in this area is that if we can achieve it, it just feels the outcome is so asymmetric, um, you know, asymmetrically big relative to, to the risk right now. Yeah, and when you you know you talk about these systems that are uh, you know total market or network valuations of uh, of a billion dollars, if you think about comparing that to you know J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, three hundred billion, you can yeah. see that there's a lot of runway to grow. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this once people realize that how much power there is in being based on the internet with no central locus of control, um, there's no question to me that this entire sort of cryptocurrency category is worth more than any individual business in the world. Um, but of course, today, all cryptocurrencies combined are valued at you know something like $350 billion. Um, it's still much, much smaller than individual corporations um, in, in the world right now. I just think that uh, cryptocurrency has been a you know, massively misunderstood technology in part because it's very technically complicated and it's fully permissionless. So anybody in the world can get involved and launch a business. Anyone can create their own cryptocurrency. Anyone can deploy a smart contract. And so that's kind of the beauty of the whole system. But the problem is, if you don't really know what you're doing, it just means there is a lot of noise in cryptocurrency. Because there's, you know, because the, by nature of these sort of totally permissionless entrepreneurial environments, um, you're just going to see a lot happening. And so if you if you don't know how to cut through the gruff, so to speak, is going to feel like a lot of noise and chaos. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency is is the name itself. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting about Polychain is that it says what it is right on the tin, right? It's multiple yeah. chains and yeah. it's interesting. I also think that, you know, one of the things that we've noticed here at Real Vision is some of the biggest skeptics uh, of these technologies, some of the emerging technologies, are not people from the traditional finance and investing space who frequently don't really understand them. It's people who are the so-called Bitcoin maximalists who feel that the development of cryptocurrency kind of reached its apogee in uh, in 2009 and nothing thereafter shall have any uh, material support because it was already perfect as it as it was. Talk to me a little bit about how you think of the Bitcoin maximalist proposition uh, and why you are uh, you are a polychain kind of guy. Well, I mean, just from an investment perspective, um, we've been around for four years. We've been through extreme bull markets, extreme bear markets, you know, chop markets, flat markets. Um, and throughout that whole time period, we have outperformed Bitcoin. 
um, with our kind of crypto fund, right? So just from a pure investment perspective, right. um, I think it's empirically wrong. Um, we have a four-year track record at this point. You know, I, I I would really need some really strong evidence why this is going to stop, you know, trending the way it has been trending for four years. Right. Um, now, just in general, I think one of the very interesting observations I've had about the people in the cryptocurrency space sometimes, and this may be true of other in, in, um, categories where there are a lot of uh, retail investors, um, I'm just most familiar with cryptocurrency, but you know, in general, in theory, you would think that you would form an opinion about the world and then you would create an investment portfolio to reflect that opinion. Right. Um, a lot of what I see from um, kind of hardline, you know, Bitcoin only, you know, type maximalism view is is actually the creation of an investment portfolio that then informs your worldview. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, does that make sense? It's kind of so much skin in the game with Bitcoin that it sort of can distort um, your worldview about the reality of the fact that many, many other exciting things are happening here um, that have real big potential. Right now, listen, to be clear, I'm a huge investor in Bitcoin and I think Bitcoin will continue to grow in value. At the same time, though, I think Bitcoin as a percentage of the value in all cryptocurrencies will continue to drop as it has uh, for the past uh, four or five years. So, um, you know, to me, I just think um, it's it's kind of like, are, are your principles informing your investment or is your investment informing your principles? Yeah. And as we film here, it's about 58% of the Bitcoin dominance index of the total outstanding market capitalization. You know, one of the things that you said that I found uh, really interesting was talking about novel news use cases and your, and your interest in pursuing them. Uh, you said, I don't care about incrementally faster settlement times, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Um, and you talk about uh, not just uh, a, for, for example, I, I've heard you speak about uh, not just creating the next distributed uh, Twitter, but business cases, use cases that haven't yet been thought of because they weren't possible in a non-distributed world. Yep. And I think, um, again, the internet is a reasonable metaphor here where the internet is such a radical reimagining of what is possible that in the early days of the internet, I think a lot of the way people thought about it was, oh, it's like mail, but faster. Um, <laughs> or it's like a library, but it's easier or something, right? And Again, it's it's just human nature. We're always going to be trapped in the paradigm of what we know and understand. Yeah, um, it's very hard to say. Okay, there's this big market out here, um, and it, we're just going to call it the unknown unknown. Like we don't know what it is, and we don't even really know what we don't know. Um, like ideas like Wikipedia, um, the idea that you know, a website where anyone could create any topic and then anybody in the world could write about that topic, that that could cover the world's knowledge. It just seems very counterintuitive. And yeah. yet in hindsight, it's sort of obvious, like, oh yeah, I use Wikipedia every day, you know, to, right. to just find out information. And who would have bet that it would have outperformed Microsoft's proprietary offering for which they were charging money? I don't think any yeah. economist in the world at the time they were founded around the same time uh, would have cut those products and would have bet on Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it just, 
for me, it is, you know, what I mean to say is that when you're investing in open platforms where entrepreneurs can build anything and it's totally global and you immediately launch all products to a global user base also. Um, so the distribution is very powerful, right? Um, I, I think it's, it's very hard to predict the things that will go well. And so what uh, people tend to look um, lean on is efficiency improvements on existing business processes or existing business models that they do understand. And so um, payment settlement is a category people understand. Um, you right. know, uh, uh, trade settlement also a category people understand. Listen, the ACH protocol that governs payments in the United States from bank to bank is, is um, based on clearing checks, like paper checks, and it takes two to three days to clear a payment from one bank in the U.S. to another bank in the U.S. Um, and then it can be charged back for uh, something like 60 days. Right. It's a jokingly bad system. Nobody thinks it's a good system. Nobody thinks it's modern. Um, and, you know, the entire wave of like computers and then software and then the Internet still hasn't really made its impact on improving that system. Like right. it still literally operates, at, you know, basically manually and as if it's clearing checks. And yeah, so it's amazing. I, I spent a bit of time working in the back office of uh, Credit Suisse and uh, some other banks. And it's extraordinary. These legacy technologies like ACH for net settlement and payment, uh, the Swift messaging system, uh, even Fedwire on the on the gross settlement system side, incredibly antiquated. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's very easy to see how blockchains could improve those systems. You're basically taking all of that uh, legacy manual logic and you're putting it into um, onto the Internet and having it automated, right? So there's no question that there's massive efficiency improvements um, for things like trade settlement, payment settlement with blockchains, but it's completely missing the big picture. Right. It's kind of like saying, yeah, the internet was faster mail, you know, it really was. And, and but it, you'd be completely missing the big picture if you thought that's all it was. Um, and so investing in, you know, these platforms and protocols that can lead to those unknown unknowns you know, these these exotic business models that are sort of hard to predict. Um, you know, a lot of the ideas we we see on the Internet today, they seem obvious in hindsight, but they were not obvious when they were created. You know, yeah. these are very big businesses, things like Facebook. Um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, in hindsight, this idea of a social network where everyone has a profile and you can share images and text just seems kind of obvious. Um, but I really think it was not obvious back when Facebook was founded. And it was even less obvious in the 90s when, you know, fundamental Internet infrastructure was being built. Yeah. Uh, so and, I and also not the first iteration to succeed for those of us who remember Friendster uh, and MySpace. Yeah. I mean, yes. It takes some iterations to get there. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that, you know, um, it's, it's important with blockchains to sort of understand architecturally why this is unlocking new type, a, a new type of like expression. And, and it allows thousands of entrepreneurs all around the world to come and sort of permissionlessly build on this, much like the internet. And that's why we see so many radical experiments executed on blockchains that are sort of hard to wrap your head around. Um, it's because people are, are natively taking advantage of this new system to build something that's sort of uniquely enabled by this new technology. It's not just a faster, better trade settlement system. And so, you know, for me, 
as an investor, you need to keep an extremely open mind when you're investing in open protocols. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Uh, talking of protocols and Web 3.0, for people who may not have heard of uh, technologies like Polkadot and Cosmos, what are the goals of some of those systems and, and where are they today? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the goal um, of, of more modern blockchains, like since Bitcoin, is the ability for developers to express more complicated logic that executes in that same highly secure environment that Bitcoin transactions settle in. So this premise of Bitcoin is that if I send Bitcoin from point A to point B, it's an extremely secure payment mechanism where I don't need to know who point B is. Um, I don't need to trust point B. B doesn't need to trust point A. Um, All we need to trust is, is the security parameters of the network as a whole which are extremely robust. So Bitcoin as a whole is sort of hack-proof, right? Um, so once you have this sort of hack-proof environment where you can do financial, you know, things like payments, um, you know, the big, big breakthrough of Ethereum was, what if we use that same hack-proof environment for arbitrarily complex computation? So rather than this just being about payments, what if it could be about escrow and trading and lending and, and those are and, and crowdfunding, right? Um, asset issuance, right? Those are all the sorts of things that Ethereum has been used for. But at the same time, um, this is a very hardcore tech challenge. It's not like all this stuff could have existed on some other system. Ethereum, when it was launched, uniquely enabled the development of all these sorts of things. One of the problems, though, is scaling a massive distributed system with tens of thousands of nodes all um, verifying all of those computations by anyone in the world trying to use that blockchain is a very hard scalability problem. So Ethereum today, um, when you look at all the services that have take off that have taken off, it's really primarily limited to mathematical or financial logic. Right. It's the ability to add, subtract, you know, compound, um, you know, measure prices. It, it's not the ability to, for example, you mentioned Filecoin earlier. Um, which is launching actually on October 15th. Um, it, it's not the ability to um, to serve text or serve images or these more uh, robust, rich web-like experiences that we're used to. And so what you've seen with Ethereum is the development of these kind of math-based um, logic in these smart contracts, and that has really taken off. Uh, but even that use case is pushing Ethereum to its scalability limits. Mm. With these newer, more modern systems like Polkadot, you have substantially greater um, scalability. And in the Polkadot system, it's basically through um, what you might call parallelization, where you know instead of having every single node in the entire system verify every single computation, you sort of di- split it up and divide the process and parallelize the process. And then they sort of all settle back. That's it's a, that's a very high-level explanation of how it works. But in general, what this means is that you can express much, much more complicated logic that's verified in that same smart contract, highly secure blockchain environment. 
And so what it means is that with systems like Polkadot, systems like Filecoin, um, you're, you're going to see much more robust, like expressive web-like services, but with this same sort of highly secure execution environment that we see with Bitcoin and with Ethereum. So we're kind of, to use again the internet metaphor, you know, um, Bitcoin was kind of like email, right? Send text back and forth. Ethereum was kind of, you know, okay, let's add images. Um, and now we're entering the era of sort of video and streaming, right? We're, we're just moving up uh, the scalability uh, of what these systems are capable of. And of course, when you increase the scalability, you, you massively, um, um, you know, it, enlarge the universe of applications that are possible, right? The U reason YouTube wasn't, um, was founded in 2003 instead of 1996 was like a real tech it wasn't, you know, nobody thought of it or something. It right. was because this video encoding and decoding is a technically difficult problem. Once it was solved, this new business model was enabled. Um, and so I think that's one of the very big things we're, we're looking at over the next year in, in the blockchain landscape is more scalable platforms um, and, and platforms that enable new types of behavior uh, like those we talked about and how those will then enable new types of business models and applications that again are unprecedented. Yeah, talking about new types of business applications and Filecoin, uh, if you could explain a little bit about what Filecoin is and why it has so much promise. Yeah, so Filecoin is um, building a sort of automated marketplace for file storage. So right now, if you want to store files, you have to go to Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, um, you know, Google Cloud and enter into a contract with that cloud provider. Um, you know, in the Filecoin universe, the idea of where your files are stored specifically is abstracted away. And um, it turns the global file storage market into one universal liquid order book where I can go uh, purchase files uh, the, the ability to store files from a service provider on the Filecoin network. So there's kind of two things going on here. One is the the backwards looking efficiency improvements. So could Filecoin be be cheaper in certain cases than existing cloud providers? And that's exciting, right? Because that's potentially a massive market. These cloud uh, uh, providers like Amazon Web Services are huge businesses. Um, but the more exciting thing for me with Filecoin is uh, Filecoin, because it has a distributed file service, uh, file uh, delivery architecture that it's built on, allows for smart contracts to reference files for the first time ever. So right, right now, the you know these Ethereum-based um, smart contract systems, any really contract system that's embedded in a blockchain, right now it can't reference centralized servers. Um, it just, it doesn't, you know, you can't have like, compound finance the smart contract engage in a contract in in a legal pen and paper contract with amazon web services right like it, it it again it's this legal entity problem bitcoin the network can't enter into legal agree agreements uh but you know these smart contract systems can uh request the filecoin network for file storage or retrieval of files so for the first time, you have smart contract systems that can deliver files. 
And so that to me is going to, and you know, this is text, image, you know, whatever it might be. And so that to me is what's so exciting is again, the sort of unknown unknowns right. about what will developers be able to build when you combine uh, file storage and file delivery with this smart contract logic. And my prediction is that we'll, we will see use cases that are beyond just financial services, what we see in Ethereum today. We will actually see more of these, like, as you put it, Web3 type applications that are um, expressive and, and have more of a traditional web-like user experience. Yeah. You know, there are three things about what you just said that I think are fascinating. The first is the idea of talking about a global fungible liquid market uh, with an order book for storage. Fascinating concept. Uh, the second is the point you just made about the legal entity problem being solved by being able to make calls against a truly distributed storage network. And the third uh, is thinking about the nature of the paradigm shift. This may sound a little bit crazy to people who are listening today going, I I'm going to rent out storage space on on my son's friend's phone for. But when you think about this, right, if we it wasn't all that long ago where the idea that storing uh, corporate data uh, on Amazon Web Services or Dropbox would have seemed completely insane. Cloud services for storage architecture was a crazy idea as recently as probably 15 years ago. Every company, yep. small, medium, and large, had a, had a file server uh, somewhere that held their corporate proprietary data. And uh, no CTO would have allowed their data to be stored in the cloud. Massive paradigm shift uh, secured by physics and mathematics. Yeah, I, exactly right. And I think people um, often, you know, underestimate how much you know software moves very 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 quickly uh, because there's no upfront cost um, you know the way that there is with hardware or manufacturing you have this very very fast iteration uh, in, in the world of software and you know these blockchain systems are pure it, you know I think one of the fascinating things is that they're pure software systems and I think a lot of the time I call a lot of the cutting edge development in cryptocurrency kind of the rocket science of software. Like I really think it's the most hardcore software engineering happening in the world today. Um, but they, those peer software systems lead to massive physical infrastructure deployment. Right. You know, the, the world of Bitcoin mining, I mean, go look up some pictures of, you know, some of the largest mining facilities in the world. It is remarkable the physical infrastructure that has been propped up to support this decentralized protocol system, all because of incentives built into the software. And with Filecoin, you're seeing the very same thing. So for example, the, um, you know, in general, these service providers that store files in the Filecoin network are called miners, right? It's sort of like in Bitcoin. The Filecoin mining infrastructure build out in China right now is unbelievable. The network's not even live, and the amount of physical infrastructure that has been built to support mining Filecoin is is honestly unbelievable. Mm. Um, so I, th I think that um, it, it's just this remarkable thing where blockchains are like these pure software mechanisms that actually lead to real, you know, um, it moves away from the world of bits into the world of atoms and actually has this massive coordination effect and physical infrastructure build out um, without having to actually go do that. It's just right. a software system that coordinates humans to go do it. 
Yeah, and that's fascinating. And one of, I think, the most underappreciated aspect of blockchain technology is the incentivization structure. Effectively, uh, blockchains are distributed networks in the same way that capitalism is a distributed network. You have the laws of supply and demand. Uh, you have a demand for a certain build out and it comes online in an uncoordinated, decentralized way. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I think that the types of things that blockchains are coordinating humans to do will get more and more complex and sophisticated over time. Um, so this, you know, not to get too sci-fi, but these ideas of sort of blockchain-based corporations, um, you know, eventually you get to things that almost look and feel a little bit like internet nation states, mm -hmm. um, where you kind of have everyone opt into a monetary system, and then there may be all these corporate services built on top of that monetary system, much in the way that we have, you know, fiat money and, and corporations built on the sort of legal apparatus supported by that fiat money. Yeah. And it's interesting. They all sort of these things, these concepts date back to the same time. The Treaty of Westphalia, the foundation of the nation state, uh, the evolution of the joint stock corporation. Uh, these ideas all held uh, for centuries. And so it's really interesting to think that this is technology that can begin to, uh, if not unseat them totally, at least begin to change them at the margin. Mm hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I just think um, it's it's very foundational and it's mostly about um, using economic incentives to coordinate humans and, and capital. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, it's just a very misunderstood area because it is technically complicated and it is a, a actually new paradigm. It's not a gimmick um, and it's not you know, these incremental improvements. It's radically re-envisioning what we think of as money or, or uh, uh, equity or, um, you know, a corporation and a financial service. All these things are being radically reimagined right now. Yeah. And so it's probably quite sensible uh, and, and, and in, in retrospect, predictable that DeFi would have been the first uh, major category of applications to come online because this is something that people in the financial community understand uh, at the conceptual level. Yes, exactly. And this whole category of DeFi or decentralized finance um, has really exploded over the last several years. You know, we, we've been investing in this category since the launch of Polychain, but it really only got a name um, in about late 2018, and it really only truly took off in 2020. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, though, I think that DeFi is a, such a big category in part because of the scalability limitations of existing platforms. Once we kind of burst open um, more scalable systems, you're going to see more complicated types of decentralized business models outside of financial services. It just turns out that financial services are very simple, um, you know, from sort of a computational perspective relative to, you know, streaming video or something like that. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of the upside potential. When you think about DeFi, what concerns you the most? What are some of the things that you worry about in the space? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the pace it's moving is very, very fast. And um, although, you know, I, I think a lot of traditional financial services regulations are well intentioned, um, you know, in Tradition, regular people in general don't want rapid, you know, extreme breakneck speed of financial services innovation. They don't want their bank saying, 
you know, we found all these different ways to get yield for you and we're going to run out and get it. Um, they actually want kind of safety and security and a recognized brand, you know, in, in traditional financial services, those are the things that matter. Um, and I think the whole DeFi landscape has, you know, really turned that on its head and gone the opposite direction. It's let's move as fast as possible, um, rapid experiments. You know, these contracts that get deployed overnight are are raising hundreds of millions of dollars literally in, you know, 24 or 48 hours. I mean, the, the, right. the, the ability to coordinate capital in these systems is more efficient than we've ever seen in humanity. Like it's, right. it's more efficient than IPOs. It's, it's more efficient than venture financing. Like the speed at which a disparate group of people that don't know each other and have never spoken can coordinate capital resources using blockchains. I mean, it's, it's really happening faster than we've ever seen in the world. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think that there's dangers to that. Um, you know, this pace of innovation is remarkable. And I think that over a long enough time horizon, you know, that is what will show through. But there's going to be hacks and failures and misconfigurations and bad behavior along the way. So I think it's, it's crypto has always kind of been like this. It moves so fast that there's like a wake of chaos um, at the edges, you know. And I think a lot of uh, this sort of mainstream emphasis is looking at the wake of chaos, right? It's it's looking at all the hacked exchanges, not at the success of Coinbase, right? Um, and it's looking at you know how Bitcoin um, could be used for to buy and sell marijuana on the internet instead of how it's like this economic renaissance, right? So I just think that. Um, there's going to be a, a wake of chaos with the development of DeFi over the next couple of years. Yeah. You know, and from a purely quantitative standpoint, the two things that I think are most striking, first, obviously, as you pointed out, the speed of the capital accumulation and capital formation is extraordinary. We've never seen the like of this uh, ever before, and that's an, an amazing story. And the second, on the yield farming side of DeFi, is the amount of yield uh, that some of these uh, that some of these protocols are generating. I think a, a lot of people on the traditional finance side look at that and go, "Well, I'm getting basically nothing on overnight T bills. The, the you know the 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 ten year Treasury note is yielding is somewhere between 75 and 80 basis points, depending on the day of the week. How is it possible that these yields are so enormous? What is generating such high yield when the the uh, the protocols are collateralized in a programmatic way? I think people struggle to understand that. Yep. And so I think um, this gets into some pretty complicated financial engineering that has come out of this. But there's a very big trend um, uh, around what, what I like to call network mining, or people call it uh, liquidity mining, was the mm. name you used. And the idea is, um, OK, we're going to bootstrap one of these blockchain-based you know, services. You know, I don't want to call it a business. We're, we're going to uh, bootstrap one of these blockchain-based services. So um, like the, a lending service, take Compound, for example. So um, what that means is we want liquidity. We want lots of people lending and lots of people borrowing. And we want basically a liquid order book, so to speak, for this lending marketplace. Um, so how, how could we do that? Well, one way that startups uh, bootstrap growth is to basically hand out equity or cash. Uh, so, you know, PayPal famously paid people $20 to sign up to PayPal, right? And Uber offered free rides, you know, um, for new users or referrals and things like that. 
those kind of growth hacking hacking tactics to stimulate growth are very uh, well established in uh, traditional startups. And basically, the the blockchain version of it is you actually have the protocol give out programmatically future ownership of that underlying system um, to the users of the system, basically pro rata based on the amount of capital they contribute. These so are the so-called governance tokens that are- Yes, and so these, these are the comp tokens in the compound system that sort of govern and accrue value from that underlying financial service. And 50% of all comp tokens are distributed to people who put liquidity into the compound lending and borrowing pools. So um, you're, you're kind of, the reason it's called liquidity mining is because by contributing to the bootstrapping of the network effects of the system, you're actually mining you know, um, the coins in that system. You're mining the, the distribution of, of the compound token. And that compound token represents in ownership over that lending pool. So it's kind of like giving you know, I think a crude metaphor is it's, it's like giving equity grants to early users of your service mm. in order to bootstrap use. So Facebook, say, has this hard problem of when I'm the first user of Facebook, the site really sucks. Like there's no point. The whole premise of it is network effects. And the more of my friends that are on it, the more useful the service becomes. So one way Facebook could have done that is they could have said, we're going to give 10 percent of, of Facebook equity to uh, the first one million users. And then we're going to give 5% of Facebook equity to the next 10 million users, and then 2% of Facebook equity to the next 100 million users, right? And they could have sort of distributed ownership in Facebook to those users um, in order to stimulate network effects because you're, it's actually value accretive, right, in that you're, you're giving out sort of equity, but it's also to bootstrap a mechanism that becomes more and more and more valuable the more network effects you build. So that sort of network mining mechanism is a is a kind of interesting financial engineering that's happening a lot in blockchains to distribute ownership of the financial service uh, to the users who are actually bootstrapping liquidity in that financial service. And so that when there's in addition to that liquidity mining system speculation as to the future value of that uh, liquidity mining token, that is when you get such extreme yields in right. these systems. And so, as that uh, as that the the speculative aspect uh, begins to uh, fall off, as the underlying value of the asset declines, the rate of yield will fall as well. That's exactly right. Yeah, and again, these are still secured with uh, other protocols, principally Ethereum, uh, that uh, are used to the staking of those protocols. Yep, that's correct. So all of these sort of you know, internet corporation structures, so to speak, rely on the security of the underlying blockchain in order for they, you know, themselves to have security of their own contracts and capital. Right. So as you look ahead uh, the next, you know, one, two, three years in the DeFi space, what are your expectations? What's your outlook? Uh, and what are you going to be looking for to understand if the thesis is correct? Yeah, I think the, the, I'm going to be looking for new use cases uh, more than anything. You know, we're always looking for what type of application was is only possible now. It's sort of uniquely enabled by some breakthrough in sort of the research community. So we track the research community really closely in distributed systems, peer-to-peer -peer networks, cryptography, you know, game theory, economics, 
And when there's a breakthrough there, oftentimes there's an interesting and innovative business model that comes out of that. So um, we track that very closely and I'm excited for the kind of novel applications that are going to come out of this, you know, more scalable set of platforms. So I think that, um, you know, to me, the other thing that I need, we need to see over the next few years is appropriate abstractions of all the complexity of these systems. Because, you know, DeFi is great, but sort of in a vacuum. Um, if you actually try to go use it, it's kind of a disaster, right? You, you have to go get Ethereum, you have to download software, um, you have to interact with these contracts. It's all scary, it's all complicated. There's a bunch of public keys and cryptographic signatures. And the whole thing just feels like I'm not a hacker. I, you know, I'm not ready to use this. Yeah. Um, so we need appropriate abstractions to make simple things like lending services um, accessible to the average user. So, you know, we need to move this to the mobile phone and off to the desktop. We need to abstract away things like cryptocurrency, public addresses, which are like these long alphanumeric password like things. Um, we need to abstract away, you know, all of that weird complexity. And so I, I think a simple metaphor is, for example, IP addresses. Um, you know, back in the day when you wanted to use the internet, you would log into a server with this IP address. Eventually we got the domain name system. So you'd go to google.com instead of some string of numbers. And we still don't have, you know, a widely adopted standard for that sort of healthy abstraction to get the end user away from like the nuts and bolts of how it all works. Yeah. Olaf, we've blown through an hour and I've gotten through uh, barely half of my questions. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna have to come back so we can talk more about uh, the investing uh, philosophy, how you think about that world. Uh, so much to talk about. Yeah, happy to, Ash. I, I know we didn't get to a lot of my thinking about value accrual and why this whole category represents, in my view, the, the best investment opportunity of a generation, um, which is why I've been involved in this for so long. Um, but happy to come back. Um, really enjoyed the conversation and, and thanks for having me. That sounds like a perfect part two, Olaf. Okay, awesome. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.